So if you have a question, please come to the microphone. It's up here on stage. Please state your name, keep your comments brief, and your questions, just one or two questions. And please, no questions from the floor. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. So, sorry? I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Hi. Thank you very much for your talk. You're welcome. Very refreshing. We were discussing at our table how refreshing it is to uh, hear someone in the medical profession who is able to look <clears throat> introspectively at the practice. Um, my question has to do with alternate, medica- alternate medicine. You talked about eating healthy and, and exercising and doing all these things. Um, what, is, what is the true reason why the medical profession um, will not accept chiropractic fully as an alternate medicine, like in Alberta, uh, under Medicare, chiropractic is only partially funded. Mm-hmm. Um, good, good question. <laughs> I wish I had the, the exact answer. I only have my own thoughts on that. Um, first of all, I think there's a lot of things that should be covered under our public health umbrella that aren't. I think there's a lot of things that people can um, obtain a lot of benefit, non-interventional, non, uh, uh, non-pharmaceutical ways. I mean, even just looking at massage therapy, physiotherapy, um, and you've mentioned chiropractic medicine, things and ways that people can get a lot of benefit from and they're not covered. Uh, I think that's uh, that does more to, um, to sort of throw people off their track in terms of achieving a better health in general. Um, as far as the reason why it's not covered, I I wish I wish I knew the answer. To be honest, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of alternate um, alternate alternative forms or complementary forms of medicine that that Western medicine, do, uh, conventional medicine, doesn't really understand. And and I think um, you know I hope that it's not seen as sort of a threat. I see it as as other ways other tools that patients can use to be healthy, as long as there's not significant risk attached to it and as long as there's not significant expense um, that's over and above the amount of benefit that the patient gets from it. I think whatever helps the patient, that's what I tell people. Whatever you can do um, that's reasonable that will help you, go ahead and do it. So I wish more was covered. My name is Bobby Pendergast, and I would just like to know what's the length of time before a drug, a patent, run, when a patent runs out on a drug, and it can go to a generic. And like, in other words, the amount of time the drug company has to make a profit on that drug. And also, I understood, and I don't know, I guess I'm maybe incorrect, but I understood that consumer, direct consumer advertising on prescription drugs was not allowed in Canada. <laughs> and could you ask, answer yeah, that two, for me? Two really good questions. Um, the second one I'll answer, and then I'll have to be reminded what the first one was. But the second one, yes, direct consumer advertising is not permitted um, in Canada as it is in the U.S., and New Zealand is the other country that do allow it. In Canada, however, there are ways around it, and the industry is very good at finding those ways. Um, and one of them is you can you can advertise for a condition, or you can s- either show something without showing exactly what it's for. So there there are ways of, and very subtle ways of advertising in Canada. And another one is that you will see an ad, but it will be for a website. And probably the best example, the one I can think of immediately, is the ad that's on TV of the um, 
the woman that's dancing and she has this alarm that says feel good and then feel bad. It's like she has a stomach cramp and basically it tells you the name of an of a website which is feelgoodfeelbad.ca and if you go to the website you'll see that you won't actually see a name of a company you won't even see a name for a medication you'll see uh, examples and quest- a questionnaire that you can fill out about whether you have arthritis and what's your pain like and what medications you're on and whether or not you're susceptible to stomach problems from anti-inflammatories and then if you go further into it it asks you to fill out the questionnaire and bring that questionnaire into your doctor but when you look at the questions they're very geared very much geared specifically towards a medication that a doctor will recognize and it's for Celebrex which is probably one of the few remaining um, anti-inflammatories which had been proposed to not affect the stomach and there is some evidence that it doesn't affect the stomach the same way other ones do, the older ones, Advil, Naproxen, Voltaren, except that there were some, there were seen, there were increased risks of heart uh, problems, heart attacks seen in things like Vioxx and Bextra was another one and so you don't see those on the market anymore but you do see this very subtle advertising um, for products in Canada. So it's, okay. it's here. And this, sorry, the first second part of the, part of the question was about patent. Oh yes, in Canada, um, and I hope I'm not wrong, but I think it's 20 years, and it doesn't start from the time the medication is on the market. So from the time the patient can get it, it starts from earlier stages in the study in the trial period, and I'm not sure exactly when, but basically. Uh, companies will try and get it through the earlier stages as much as possible, obviously, to guarantee they have as much time, patent-exclusive time for their medication. And then what they'll often do um, is they will, they will engage the legal system to ensure that their patent exclusivity continues. And so what happens is the day the patent expires, generic companies will be ready to put their generic versions, less expensive versions, on the market. And the, the patented medications, uh, the companies will employ their legal system, the legal system, their lawyers, to, to, um, to put injunctions and, and to try and tie up in things in the legal system so the generics don't have, are not able to bring their medications to market. So they do use, a, they spend a lot of money to try and extend that as much as they can. And there are other really ingenious ways of extending their patents by changing the medications, getting a new name for it. And so this is something that doctors need to be aware of as well. Go ahead. Biggle, goggle, hoogle, miggle, Viagra. <laughs> That's exactly this same type of advertising, right? right? Get people That's interested. That's not my name. My name is Mark Sandyland. Some people, <laughs> some people think that I, I do speak uh, uh, mumble-jumble. Detail men, uh, drug company representatives, uh, I hope you'll explain their role. And uh, I heard uh, a program that was instituted uh, in the late 1990s when there was an NDP government there in BC where they brought in a program of uh, non affiliated pharmacy experts who went and visited physicians' offices to. Uh, educate them about uh, available treatments for various conditions. Can you comment on those issues, please? Yeah, yeah. The um, the group that you're referring to, I think, is uh, the Therapeutics Initiative, which I, when I showed the two conferences on the on the slide, 
the one on the right was from the group Therapeutics Initiative, and that's a group of doctors and pharmacists who um, were basically given the task of reviewing medications uh, that had just come to market. And, and what they ended up doing and what they're doing now is they create newsletters uh, for physicians which outline the risks and benefits from a very objective uh, point of view. And so that's something that I use in my practice. It's funded by the government, so there's no drug industry sponsorship. And they give, they call it, uh, they call it the road show, and they basically, it's not antiques, but they, they go around to different communities and they give uh, conferences on um, basically summarizing the evidence that they've found for all of these different treatments. And it's a great, it's a great program. There's, there's not many in Canada that I can think of. Um, there's another one, a group of pharmacists from Saskatoon who have a publication called RX Files, and that's basically comparis- comparison charts for, for medications and very objective, non-industry funded uh, research as well. So, and actually, that therapeutics initiative was had come under threat recently um, because the provincial government had put together um, an ad- advisory committee, which which consisted of a lot of industry uh, experts, to advise them on whether or not the therapeutics initiative was was a viable and effective um, organization, which is sort of like getting the wolf to guard the chicken coop. But essentially, and of course, no surprise, they found that it wasn't. So I'm not sure where things are at now, but there's actually, there was threat of actually um, disbanding that. And just remind me what the first, what your first question was. Detail men, yeah. Um, You know, their job is to sell, basically. Um, You know, you you might hear stories that, oh, well, you know, the pharmaceutical representatives who come into the clinics are, you know, former scientists or they're science background trained or, you know, but the reality is they they actually recruit cheerleaders. They recruit people who are peppy and good looking and, you know, dress really nicely and they come in and they, they shake your hand and they say, I'm from this company and this is what I'm, you know, um, advertising or bringing, you know, forward to you. And they'll, they'll give you uh, research papers which obviously show evidence that their product is effective. And so their job is to basically sell. And they come in and, and they say hi, and they're very pleasant. And, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the more, the more physicians spend time and listening to these people, the more likely they are to be influenced by it. Um. I'm going to have to ask you to keep your answers a little bit shorter so oh, more people can get me asked. ask questions. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Art Sanford, um, Dr. Doty, excellent uh, presentation. Thank you. A uh, couple of quick ones. Uh, by the way, Ontario is, is proposing right now to hire individuals to call on doctors to do exactly the opposite of what the drug reps are doing. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Wonderful. <laughs> um, That's good. A scenario. Uh, I spent the past seven years working with Chinook Health on the board of directors, and um, one of the most infuriating situations we ran into was a patient with a fairly serious health problem, and in comes a drug company and says, we've got a drug that will make you feel much better. It's not a cure. It's a maintainer. And we're going to give it to you free for the next year or nine months, which they do. And at the end of that time, all of a sudden, they said, well, it's working well for you. That's good. But now you've got to pay for it. And by the way, the cost is 6000 bucks every three months. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not approved by any of the governments yet for use. Uh, the people don't have that kind of money. 
and everybody's into a fight. Yeah. Uh, we did, quite frankly, at Chinook Health, end up sponsoring that partially for a while. But it's, uh, you know what it does to budgets. Yeah. So that's the one thing I'd like to comment on. And the other one, there's another word used in the drug industry called greening. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. Maybe you'd address that one. Sure, sure. So the first part, it, it's a very effective way for the, the drug industry to get the public to do their dirty work, essentially. So they have a new product, and, um, you know, it's like a sample. It's like a sample pack in the clinic. Here's your sample. Um, and, you know, now that the patient has, has taken it for a year and found that it does, you know, make some difference for them and make them feel better, uh, now you have to pay for it. And so if you get a whole lot of those patients together, um, they might form a group. They might not. But essentially they will create a lot of pressure on the government to fund the medication and I'm not saying that it isn't a useful medication or that it shouldn't be funded or anything, but it's a lot easier for them instead of instead of trying to um, get that done themselves, they'll get the public to do it for them. And so that's a very common common uh, thing that you know that's out there. Evergreening is is something that companies do. There are different ways of um, basically extending their patent exclusivity and. And so I mentioned that before, um, but things like changing the medication uh, formulation a little bit so that it still does the same thing, but they can they can actually get around the legal system to make, give it a different name and get a new patent for it. Um, they can also refine the medication a little bit, or oftentimes a medication that's taken twice a day. Um, they'll have a patent for that for a number of years, and then they'll they'll all of a sudden make the same medication, but in a one-time dose, a one day, once a day dose, and then now it has a new name, so that can extend their patent. They get a new patent for that. That's called evergreening, basically lengthening your patent. Yep. Thanks very much. Um, Bridget Pastor, I'm the MLA from Lethbridge East, and um, I am delighted with your presentation, and I'm also delighted that at my age there's someone like you following. It's wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks. <clears throat> um, actually, I'm just probably going to ask you to, to give some comments on, on my comments, and I promise I will try to be brief, Michelle. Thank you. Um, one of the things uh, that was spoken about was chiropractic, and on February the 4th, Hector Goudreau, who's the Minister of Employment and Immigration, so obviously this isn't the federal government when it's only one voice speaking, uh, spoke about health and that they are considering cutting 30 services that they won't be obliged to provide um, under the Canada Health Act, one of them being chiropractors, wart removal, and some minor surgeries not defined. Uh, so that was just sort of a little aside when we're talking about chiropractors. And then another thing I'd like to quote from Hansard, it's from the... Um, all-party standing field committee on health, and it's part of the conversation was about Bill 53, which is the uploading of all your personal health information. But this was from Dr. or Mr. Uh, Eberhardt, who is the registrar for the Alberta College of Pharmacists, and he said, a couple of observations, Mr. Horn. One that you may be aware that pharmacists in Alberta were mandated as of about 18 months ago. Does everyone in the room know that they're personal pharmaceutical information has been uploaded to a common repository. Does everybody know that? About 18 months ago, uploaded all dispensing, it's not your personal, it's dispensing events um, into the electronic health record that was established through regulation of the minister. 
The question that comes forward in the legislation, again, is that it provides the authority for the minister to require health providers to upload information. I think the question, the uncertainty is, what is this information going to be? Where is it going to go? Who's going to use it? And so I think it falls in under, I'm really stretching it, under what you've been talking about. Yeah, you got about, about 10 doctor. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> what you've been talking about, doctor, because the point is, the far, yeah. um, insurance companies have access to that information. Yeah. Yeah, I think certainly having in, prescribing information in some sort of data bank, and I'll give you some examples. Patient comes into the emergency room, they're unconscious, you don't know what's wrong with them, you need to find out what medications they're on right now, and they may not have anyone with them. So there needs to be a way for the staff to search medications and find out what the patient's been taking, as well as dispensing information in that sense because you don't know whether they filled their prescriptions, you don't know whether they're taking it. Um, so that's important. The other is in terms of public health needs uh, where we need to know who's, what are the prescribing uh, changes that have occurred, what medications are we using, how does that relate to marketing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, good uses for, for that information. However, now that you have a data bank, um, there will be intense pressure to make that data bank, uh, uh, that database available uh, for companies who s stand to gain financially from it, okay? So I want my patient's information to be used to treat them in the emergency room. I want that information to be used, um, you know, to, to make healthcare better. But I do not want that information to be used by a company who either, A, wants to know what I'm prescribing so they know how to market to me effectively, or uh, how good their marketing efforts are to patients, whether it's working, whether their ads are working or their websites, okay, as well as insurance companies, you know, which medications should we cover, which ones should we not, and keep in mind that insurance companies are for profit, right, so, so they're not serving your needs, they want to cover the things that make them the most money, so there's a fine line, and that needs to be actually not a fine line, it needs to be a solid line, <laughs> so that's, that's what I would, would fear as well. We have about 10 minutes left. I just want to encourage people to keep their, their questions and preambles to one mm -hmm. minute, and I will stop you, and I and will stop uh, me at I'll let you know minute. when you have 30 <laughs> seconds left. Okay. Uh, Gary Stauffer here. Hi, I have Gary. a question on research. Given the fact that likely the public purse will not open up uh, a fair amount over the yeah. next few years yeah. for research, how would you see a change then in the research model? What would you like to see? Second question, uh, in the course of a week, how many people would come in asking about a given medication that they have seen on TV? Is it a small percentage, large percentage? I think it's, for me, I'm fairly new to practice as well, so I don't have a wealth of, of experience. It's fairly limited, I think, uh, compared to what it might be in the U.S. where they are advertising specific names. So I may not have a patient come in and say, you know, I saw an ad for this. Uh, can I take it? Should I take it? Is it right for me? That sort of thing. But you will have patients come in and talk about different disease areas or symptoms that they're having, and you can kind of get a sense that they're going somewhere with it. They've heard about, you know, irritable bowel syndrome. Of they heard, They've heard about something somewhere, and so... It's a little bit more subtle, but I, I think it certainly happens. I definitely see people come in like that. Um, and as far as research, 
that's a tough question. I mean, I think we need the funding. We need the universities to be doing, and in a lot of cases, they still are doing the research, but they're being bought. The, the information is being taken over and, and patented and branded and all of that. Um, I wish I had a good answer for you as far as how to deal with it, but I think we need to start recognizing that we're not getting the research on the on the right areas. My name is Tom Kane, and I would like to know um, how safe and accurate are our blood tests. Like, and does the uh, far, do the pharmaceuticals have any influence on designing those blood tests in their favor? Can you really believe the doctor when the blood test says you got to go on this medication? Yeah, I think I think the blood tests themselves are fairly accurate. Um, you know, there are things with regard to reference ranges, and there's sometimes some confusion about whether a blood test is positive or negative, that sort of thing. But aside from that, um, it's what you do with the information that's important. And, you know, I'll give an example of cholesterol. Someone checks your cholesterol. The number itself is fairly accurate, but what isn't accurate is knowing uh, what that means. You know, what does it mean to have a slightly elevated cholesterol? Does it mean that you're going to have a heart attack in five years? Uh, so we have methods to try and determine that, but all in all, it's not a really accurate way. And how can you predict somebody's chance of having uh, a serious cardiac event? And so that's where the confusion get, enters into the picture. And for the pharmaceutical industry, uh, it's to their benefit to have that, that seen as a disease. It's called hypercholesterolemia. That's, that, is, that is saying that you have high cholesterol. And what may be a risk factor, in my, in my opinion, uh, is seen more as a disease. And there's a lot of hazy areas in terms of, okay, well, now you need to be on a medication. So we need to be able to say, um, get the evidence from our doctor. What does this mean for me? What are my chances? How can I reduce my chances? How much? Give me a number by taking this medication for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. I want to talk more about that, but I can't. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is James Moore. Thank, Thank you, you very much for coming out, Tim. Uh, mm -hmm. Great presentation, and I think some courage as well. Thank you again. <laughs> a couple comments on <laughs> on uh, the research uh, point again. First of all, in the federal budget, the recent federal budget. Uh, conservative budget supported by the liberals, there is a clause that says that the research funding must be business-oriented. And the second comment is when the drug companies talk about the need for the 20-year patent protection because of research, the figures show that the amount they spend in research is a fraction, a tiny fraction of the amount they spend on marketing. I don't remember it exactly, but I think it's something like less than one quarter so, uh, you know, just those comments, and if you want to react to them, please. You know, research, research dollars being allocated when there's business interests. I mean, I, I, I obviously, that's worrisome that, um, you know, the incentive or the support um, for research would be toward only th things that would... Uh, no, it's the... Anyways, yeah, okay. Um, I think that's concerning. I mean, we, we need to we need to establish criteria for research and and have a way of assessing whether or not uh, that's really in our best interest or not. Um, and just remind me that the second thing is yes, yes, yes. 
Thanks. So the the portion of the proportion of money that goes into research. I mean, one of the things that you hear whenever there's any sort of um, argument or you know discussion about what the in, how much the industry is spending on research, and they'll always say, you know, and in their ads they'll say, you know, we're we're the leading research-based pharmaceutical companies, and we spend all this money on research. But in fact, you're correct in saying that they spend way, way, way more money on marketing and advertising than they do research. And when you look at the trends in the medications that have been released and brought to the market in the last decade or so, um, you see that the research that would have to go into those medications um, is, is not nearly as much as it would be to create a, an actual new, a completely new product. So, Okay, we have less than five minutes left. Okay. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. I'm not from around here, but this is where I now live. And I have to say that I'm a little disturbed. That when I go to see my family doctor, he doesn't look at me. He doesn't touch me. He doesn't ask me how I feel and does that hurt. He simply looks at his computer and prescribes pills. Now, are you all like that these days? <laughs> or are there any doctors out there who, for want of a better term, are a little more old-fashioned in their approach? And if there are, yeah. how does one change to one of those? Yeah. I think, I think the changing part is, um, you know, it may be difficult. <laughs> but I think, I think that's an interesting point because it is, unfortunately... Uh, much of the reality these days, and there's a lot of reasons why, and I only have probably 30 seconds, but um, first of all, doctors, we need more doctors. So doctors are pressured. They have lots of patients that are under their care. They need to see a lot of people in the daytime. So their visits are kept much shorter than they would have in the past. And and so there's one reason why um, those things are occurring. The second is a lot of clinics have turned over to computer charting systems, which certainly have some advantages. Um, but in, in fact, what it does is it introduces another, another person into the room, and that's the computer, right? And the computer screen sits there, and it wants attention. It wants, you know, the doctor to tell it what to do and to enter things. And so you get sidelined for the computer. And that's something that I've I actually have computers in my rooms, but I don't use them. I don't turn them on. I have a computer in my office, and that's where I spend time with the computer and to keep it happy. But when I'm in with the patient, um, I sit there and I, and I do those things that you say <laughs> would be nice for doctors to do, but it takes me more time. So I don't make as much money. And I think doctors, uh, it's difficult. It really is. Time pressures, uh, computer charting, uh, you know, all of these things. And in fact, uh, the best way, and I, I won't lie about this, but it's, it's too bad, but the best way to sometimes end an appointment is to give somebody a piece of paper and say, here's your prescription. See you next time. And so they actually have prescriptions that say things like, I have a little pad that says, uh, you know, get some rest or drink fluids. <laughs> or, so, you know, go for a massage or something like that. But um, maybe we need to do more of that. Okay, last question, please. My name is Knut Peterson. Uh, Tim, thanks for coming. Could you maybe give us a few suggestions as to what ultimately probably is going to get us out of this jam, <laughs> which is a healthier lifestyle? 
Yeah, uh, I think the first thing that we we need to do is we need to awareness is the word, the catchphrase. We really need for people, and I'm you know I give talks to doctors as well, and it's as much a problem uh, with them as it is with the whole you know all of society. And we could go into all sorts of different areas, but basically awareness. People need to know what goes on behind the curtain, right? And so once we recognize that, then we can all sit in a room and say, okay, what do we need to do about it? And I don't know if I have a lot of really great answers for that, but I think that the little things that we do each day make a huge difference. And even if it means asking your doctor some of those questions um, or reading some articles on the Internet or, you know, signing up to join an organization that you really think is doing a good thing, um, those are all things we need to mobilize more as a, as a, as a society. Okay, thanks very much. And thanks to everyone for being here today. Thanks for having me.